from University of Puget Sound, it's What We Do, a weekly podcast about the innovators, teachers, dreamers, and performers of Puget Sound and the stories behind the work they do. So, Professor, um, you've spent a lot of time in Latin America researching indigenous populations and how, uh, rather than a hindrance to economic development, uh, they can be a great resource. And also how Latinos from developed countries can very successfully partner with those native groups for development. Um, and in 2010, uh, that research became a book, uh, Ethnic Entrepreneurs, which I should point out we reviewed in Arches mm -hmm. uh, back then. Uh, but, but lately, you've been examining how China's increased presence in Latin America has been influencing development. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think w when most of us think about world players and humanitarian aid and uh, economic assistance, we think of the U.S. and um, European nations and, and Russia. Um, uh, but recently, China has become a very large player, too, mm -hmm. uh, in Africa uh, and Latin America, your focus. Um, so to start, then, um, what's China up to? Oh, what's it not up to in Latin America? Um, I got really interested in this because, as you said, I'd been looking at uh, economic development in mostly Central America for many years, uh, and I was really interested in the cultural part of it, the way that people's identities and communities seem to matter for development. So people like indigenous communities and migrants were often seen as being the bad guys uh, working against development, and suddenly in the 90s they were seen as the good guys because they were willing to do development without relying on the state. Um, in terms of China, what I began to see was that China was also more and more reflected on the landscape and the question of their politics and also the identity of China itself as a world power and also as a local community member in many places in Latin America began to become really important. So, for example, um, what I mean by a local community member, China has a long presence in terms of uh, immigrant communities who have been in Latin America since the 19th century as part of indentured labor that was brought over, coolie labor contracts to work in sugar and agriculture. And those communities are a long-standing part of the social fabric of Central America where I'm looking. So part of what, when we're talking about China, we're talking about is those communities. But now there's this new player, which is the global China, um, which is now the biggest investor in Latin America, uh, far beyond the World Bank and other um, regional development banks. Um, it's also a group that's trying to do uh, all sorts of new aid, going to Haiti, uh, trying to help in Venezuela and other places with disaster relief. Um, it's trying to create new kinds of mechanisms for dialogue between China and Latin America. Um, so that uh, in places where we used to have the Organization of American States as kind of the main institution that would speak for questions of democracy and rights and process in Latin America. Now China's trying to find new ways to craft um, institutions and dialogues where it's kind of the main person instead of the United States. Um, and it's also financing a lot of infrastructure in the region. Um, and it's also participating in a lot of um, trade 
mainly in terms of exports uh, from the South American countries. Um, and those are mostly extractive industries. So you hear a lot about China exporting um, or importing from Latin America soy, uh, natural gas, uh, petroleum, those kinds of things. Um, and there's been a lot of um, debate about the environmental and labor and other kinds of implications of that. In Central America, what it's up to is uh, trying to also put an end or at least make a dent in uh, a history of about 60 years of Cold War politics. So a uh, little known fact is that uh, all of the countries of Central America still recognize Taiwan as their main uh, Chinese trading partner and diplomatic uh, affiliate. Only Costa Rica since 2007 has recognized um, the People's Republic of China. So one of the really important things that China is trying to do is make its presence known as the China in Central America and Latin America in a way that hasn't historically um, been the case. And, and is, is China advancing this way purely out of altruism, or are they a little bit more thinking, hey, you guys have got a lot of nice natural resources? Well, the lovely part about the way China has been thinking and talking about this publicly is it has this idea of win-win. It doesn't have to be one or the other. So the way it sees it, um, Latin America has been needing uh, markets for its good, its commodities. Uh, it's been wanting um, investors to come in and help them develop infrastructure and new industries. Um, and China can fill that role. And the fact that those uh, resources that it's extracting and the infrastructure that it's building largely with Chinese state companies and uh, investment um, helps China's development is just that much better. So um, they've really um, eschewed this idea that it has to be just altruism or just instrumental sort of economic development. Um, they see their role in the region as accomplishing both of those things. And so far, many Latin American governments have been absolutely happy to play along um, under those auspices. I, you know, th this is something I hadn't thought about before. I mean, we know here, especially on the West Coast, that there was a, a large Chinese population going back quite a ways. Mm -hmm. I, I, it never really occurred to me that, of course, there, there are these populations in, in Latin America as well. Um, mm -hmm. so, so how does the, the Chinese diaspora the, these settled communities already mm -hmm. in these are are they are they uh, help, helpful in, in 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 developing this relationship? You know, it's been a really awkward dance so far uh, in many countries like Cuba and Peru, but all throughout Central America and Mexico, there are sizable Chinese diasporic uh, populations. So these are folks that um, may have come over again uh, originally as part of the indentured labor in the 19th century. Uh, another big group that came over um, in the 19th 1980s as well. Um, and these folks are largely from the southeast of China, from the Canton region, Cantonese speakers, like most of the Chinese diaspora in the United States. Um, and so on the one hand, um, there's been a lot of hope that they could serve as kind of mediators with Beijing. But the fact is that many of them either don't know much about Beijing or get along well with Beijing, um, or at least are a little bit estranged from it, right? Um, having fled China in the 80s themselves. Um, so they're not natural partners, even though we think of them as Chinese communities um, and the Chinese state. They have a very uneasy relationship. That said, um, on the ground, many of those communities have faced um, some increased scrutiny and discrimination even as other Latin Americans begin to see them not just as longstanding community partners 
um, but now suddenly potentially as extensions of Beijing. Um, so it's a very, very difficult position for many of them to be in, and many of them, um, members of those communities, have been struggling to figure out how to strike a balance between taking a leadership position um, of establishing some more trust and uh, serving as go-betweens in economics and politics, but also asserting their own identities within Latin America. We are Latin Americans, after all. We're Spanish-speaking uh, folks with a long history of citizenship, residence, and contributions to the nation in these countries. So um, a, lot of, a lot of tension there uh, and a lot of aspiration for what the Chinese communities might do, but also a lot of doubt about um, what it might take for that to happen. And for a long time, when we talk about the Americas, uh, you, the U.S. has really thought of itself as as a leader in in helping to develop these nations. Mm -hmm. What do we? What do we? How are we responding, or what do we feel about Chinese sort of moving in on what we thought was our territory? Yeah. Well, you know, China has been very, very careful um, to make its insertion in Latin America non-threatening both in terms of the language it's using for doing that, um, in terms of the industries in which it's trying to get involved, in terms of the way it's physically present. So, you know, like um, trying to avoid any sign of uh, military or um, police or <clears throat> other kind of security issues. Um, but, uh, and again, trying to not push too many uh, buttons around Taiwan uh, and their uh, affiliation with the Central American countries, really just sort of south of our border almost. Um, that said, what I thought was fascinating when I was doing this work originally, um, China talked to me, their diplomats and others talked to me about the fact that they loved doing work in Costa Rica in particular because it served this kind of hinge point. Um, they could do trade with Costa Rica, and it sort of sat in the middle of Central America in a way that connected up to the U.S. through um, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, or CAFTA, right? And also they could get imports and exports through CAFTA that they would also export to, to China. So there was this sense of a really strategic relationship um, potentially there. And I thought, wait a minute, all these U.S. businesses have got to be just furious. There's got to be some kind of um, challenge to this. And yet when I would talk to members of the Chamber of Commerce, U.S. Chamber of Commerce in uh, Latin America, uh, or diplomats, U.S. diplomats, um, they would say, not worried. This is a complementary relationship. So far, they're not impeding uh, on ground economically, politically, or militarily that we would consider, um, um, you know, vulnerable. And, uh, you know, it's free, free, free game at this point. The United States is certainly not in a position where it's sought to assert very aggressively um, any development uh, assistance um, or even in other than the drug wars and the, some of the those kinds of security interests and border um, policing, um, any real interest in getting involved in Latin America in the way that it did so intensely throughout um, the post in the Cold War period, the post World War II period. So there seems to be this uneasy fit, win-win again uh, so far, um, and we'll see how long that continues. I, you mentioned Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think. Tell me if I'm wrong. We, we we think of Costa Rica sort of as as the model of of how this development with the Latin American countries has has mm -hmm. taken place. Can we can talk a little bit more about how their uh, how Costa Rica would be an example for these other countries? Mm -hmm. 
You know, it's interesting. Uh, most of my research prior to this has been in Central America, especially in Guatemala and places that have been really challenged by civil conflict, um, by economic underdevelopment, by political strife. Uh, Costa Rica seems like the shining example relative to those places. Uh, not only does it have a very stable democracy, uh, it has no standing army. Um, it has a highly, highly educated and literate population, and especially in English. So it seems to be really great for us. Um, some of these economic issues, uh, knowledge, industry, um, possibilities. Um, but one of the things that I found really quickly is that in trying to understand China in Central America, since China was working only with Costa Rica at that point, um, is that Costa Rica is too exceptional. There's really um, very little about the Costa Rican case that we can generalize to other Central American nations because they have such a unique history and such unique uh, institutional foundations and even now cultures of democracy and education and uh, anti-corruption and other kinds of things um, that have allowed it to be somewhat at least inured to some of the um, really challenging, again, um, drug trade and, uh, and civil strife and things that have really um, defined what we call the, the triangle, right, which is Guatemala, uh, El Salvador, and Honduras. So um, I would like to say that there's something they can teach them. Um, they certainly have wanted to promote the um, fact of their knowledge economy and technology as something that other uh, countries could follow. But frankly, countries like Guatemala and, uh, and Honduras and El Salvador just don't have the same kind of human resources um, or stability uh, to kind of invite foreign firms uh, like Costa Rica did with Intel, for example, uh, into the country to set up these technology campuses or to set up things um, that can be seen as sort of a catalyst for other kinds of economic development. So. Uh, let's try to bring this to Tacoma, if we yeah. can. Uh, you've been doing this for 20 or so years. Mm -hmm. uh, how is that all working into the classroom here? Oh, you know, the, it always works into the classroom in the sense that uh, one of the wonderful things about being a uh, professor is that I get to teach courses that um, that reflect my interests. And so a couple of years ago, uh, with an international political economy professor, Emily Piney, uh, who was working at that time on soy production in Brazil, uh, we decided to develop a course on China and Latin America. Uh, this was... A little bit audacious uh, in the sense that suddenly we were trying to cover two dramatically different regions. Um, I don't know, a period of who knows how many years, depending on how long of uh, Chinese history we tried to cover, uh, economic, political, and cultural domains. Uh, it was really an an ambitious course in every way. Um, but it was fantastic because it allowed us to um, talk to and work with students from all different sectors of the campus, folks that were interested in environmental studies, in IPE, in politics, in uh, anthropology, uh, even music and food. Um, everybody was able to think about ways in which um, these trans-Pacific exchanges that we were seeing in this particular moment might be relevant to thinking about issues in their own field. Uh, for example, in terms of environmental stuff, um, you know, it was crucial to think about China's role in the world now as a potential environmental leader, right? Or at least its role um, in many cases as a polluter for many um, prior years of its um, development. Um, for people interested in uh, food and uh, music, um, this sort of flourishing again in Latin America of different kinds of cuisine and uh, new fusion uh, possibilities was really exciting. 
Um, and also clearly for economic issues, it was just crucial to be able to understand China's new world um, role, especially in Latin America. Um, this was in many ways the beginning, or not the beginning, but a reflection of the possibility of uh, what we might call South-South relations. Um, Can you explain what that means? South? Yeah. Um, there was a lot of, again, with China's sort of ascendance onto the global stage, especially uh, in starting with the you know new millennium, um, beginning to think about um, a change in the way we thought about countries that oftentimes during the Cold War were referred to as the third world. Um, in that case, there was oftentimes an assumption that places like China and Africa and Latin America had something in common because of their poverty and underdevelopment, whether or not they had anything in common really, there was an assumption. Um, and there was also a politics kind of of solidarity, oftentimes um, communicated around an international sort of socialist or um, anti sort of capitalist movement, especially as China um, forefronted that during the 1950s and 60s. Um, but this current moment was more um, celebratory of the increasing economic and political importance of places like the BRICS countries that we call them, right? Brazil, Russia, um, uh, India, China, and South Africa. Um, beginning to see these what had been um, developing nations as suddenly, as you mentioned at the beginning of our talk here, um, sources of international humanitarian aid, donors, major players on, you know, UN and other kinds of um, multilateral institutions, um, big investment banks, uh, and people that are really, you know, involved in um, doing major work around infrastructure connecting the world. So um, this became about kind of working across countries that had historically been understood to be developing nations, regardless of their actual latitude, um, but trying to think about their similarities politically, economically, and also their ascendance over countries um, in the quote-unquote North, which would be the U.S. and Europe, who had historically kind of controlled those. Uh, um, <clears throat> we've been hearing a lot about Cuba and the and the U.S. Mm -hmm. lately. I, I, I'm I'm wondering, has there any has there been any relation between China and and Cuba? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So Cuba was one of the biggest destinations for Chinese labor, um, contract labor in the in the 19th century, um, and uh, has had a large population, a large diasporic population there. Um, that's unique in some ways because during the Cuban independence movement, um, Chinese communities actually worked for Cuban independence and earned a reputation for being loyal to Cuba and true nationalists in a way um, that they did not get the favor in, in other places like Mexico, where they were often kicked out and seen as a threat. Um, so there's been a longstanding uh, Chinese diaspora in Cuba, and um, in the last several years, there's been a lot of question about um, whether the socialist ties between those countries would make for some natural affinity and economic development. Um, that has not necessarily been the case, um, although I'll say last year uh, I was part of our um, the short-term study trip to Cuba with John Lear and Don Cher. Oh, and you were on that trip. I was on that trip as oh, well. So you got to push yeah. the bus and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So one of the questions you know, that we were uh, asking, or a lot of people were asking, is can China's model of moving from socialism toward market economy serve as some kind of model for Cuba? Um, and I don't know that the Cuban government is very receptive to that model, and there's 
certainly some you know major major structural differences between the two but that question is sort of lingering in the air and what role will china play in cuba as a strategic economic partner if not political partner um, so Chinese are trying to invest in Cuba just like the U.S. or anybody else is trying to invest in Cuba right now, uh, and it's unclear what will happen, but there's a, there is a history there. Getting yes. their foot in the door now mm-hmm. that it's open. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can we talk about some of the cultural projects that, uh, that China is engaged in in, in Latin America? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what's got me interested in some ways in doing the work, and this is a confession more than anything else, because uh, I'm an anthropologist, I'm interested in economic development and identity and culture, but I'm also a huge soccer fan. And one of the things that totally fascinated me about the way that China was beginning to be visible in Latin America was the building of all these soccer stadiums across the um, countries. In Costa Rica, after uh, diplomatic relations were established in 2007, China came in as a gift and built Costa Rica, uh, uh, basically a $100 million uh, soccer stadium. Amazing. They're building soccer stadiums, not dams. That's right. Well, that too. But this was, uh, you know, what some people would call sort of a checkbook diplomacy, or some have even coined a stadium diplomacy, right? Because, you know, what else is uh, sure to win over hearts and minds than a big new soccer stadium? In Costa Rica, that was certainly the case. Uh, And as an anthropologist who does work sort of in the field uh, with a lot of participant observation and interviews, I can imagine nothing better than having to sit through several seasons of soccer games in this new stadium uh, talking to people about China. Um, That didn't quite emerge. Our schedules were a little bit different in terms of when I go down there for field work. Um, But that kind of a project uh, was really interesting as a way to get a handle on what everyday Costa Ricans um, thought about China. Uh, People on the one hand were so excited about the stadium and all that it represented for their modernization. Um, They were also so impressed at Chinese labor because the Chinese brought in about six to 700 Chinese laborers to build the stadium. And Costa Ricans just shook their head in amazement at how efficient and productive and industrious these workers were. Um, But it also raised a lot of questions for them about what would be the price tag for this kind of a cultural investment, uh, whether they would have to pay the price later, whether there would be some kinds of strings attached. Uh, And later down the line, as um, San Jose, the capital city of, um, of Costa Rica, um, its mayor built a Chinatown. In many ways, people thought this was uh, the payback, that uh, in many ways, Costa Rica was going to build a Chinatown, not prompted by China, but coming out of Costa Rica itself as a way of sort of honoring that Chinese tradition and sort of saying, we're on your side, uh, and we're going to embrace the cultural traditions as well as simply the political economic relations. Well, th- thank you so very much for being with us here today. This is fascinating. Uh, before we go, what do you see out there in the future? You know, this is actually a really important moment for this. Uh, just today, in fact, uh President Trump has announced that it will honor the One China policy. And this is coming on the heels of uh, of Taiwan's president's visit to uh, Central America this last uh, month, in which she uh, really kind of pressured in many ways those Central American countries to commit again to that partnership. Um, Over time, um, my work will continue in Nicaragua, where... um, where there is a Hong Kong businessman building supposedly a canal, the biggest in the region, uh, and in Guatemala, where Taiwan still is the main trade partner. And so I'm really interested to see how uh, what we might think about as the one China policy actually plays out in terms of who China is in Central America and what that means for the very different ways that people are trying to do development with China. All right. Well, great. Thank you so very much again. Uh, uh, My pleasure. We'll it's been see a treat. you around campus. Likewise. Good deal. <laughs> 
What We Do is brought to you by University of Puget Sound. Join us next Wednesday for another story about what we do at Puget Sound. And if you liked this podcast, rate us on iTunes.